Hello, podcast listeners. You're listening to the Gym and Tonic podcast with myself, Stephen Geddes. We cover all topics, health, fitness, and wellness related. We talk to special guests and industry leaders and get them to share their stories and experiences along with sharing our own journey and thoughts of this industry. Most importantly, we love what we do and we invite you to share your thoughts on our social media platforms. Welcome to the podcast and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello everybody, I am absolutely delighted to welcome today's guest, Michael Boyle. Michael Boyle is a world-renowned strength and conditioning coach, creator of the Michael Boyle Strength and Conditioning Facility and the Certified Functional Strength Coach, the CFSC um, certification. Michael, as I said, is a world-renowned coach, has coached athletes in the NHL, the NFL, the NBL, and, and just worldwide. Absolutely fantastic to have him on board, a wealth of knowledge, and I can't wait to pick his brain. <laughs> I apologize. Not a problem, Mike. Thanks so much for jumping on. No, thank you for waiting for me. I apologize. It's been a big day today here. They were announcing all the reopening phases, so wow, I was just yeah. talking to my partner, and then I realized what time it was. I was like, shit. It's weird now. It's saying July for us. I, I was wondering, uh, July, we're, we're August 10th, so we're a little bit down the line as well. Over here, over here, there seems to be a lot of gray areas. They're not, um, we, we don't really, like yourselves, have a, have a governing body or have anyone really to, to, to sort of push for independent gyms and things like that. And we're just being overlooked entirely. So that's the same with us. We're, you know, we're getting lumped in with, you know, Planet Fitness and Gold's Gym and all those yeah. places. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. You know, we can have, you know, we could have 40 people in the gym and have 500 feet per person. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and we're being lumped in with whatever. Yeah, it's frustrating. But, it's frustrating. Well, I try to explain that to people, all right, like that, that we were, we'd be able to implement social distancing a lot easier than a lot of the other places that are opening before us. Butcher, hook. And I suppose it is what it is. You just have to try and make make best of a bad situation. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Um, but listen, thanks so much. I done a little intro there while while I was waiting for the pop on. Um, obviously this isn't live, so we'll put this to probably in the next couple of days. I'll get it up onto 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 the podcast, and uh, we'll get it up on Spotify and we on iTunes and all those as well. Good play that. So thanks, thanks a million for coming on. No problem. Um, I, I've gotten so many messages about this particular one. <laughs> You're obviously quite a well-known guy, well-respected guy in the industry. For anyone that is listening and, and hasn't come across you, um, can you just explain a little bit about what you do and uh, I suppose um, your certifications, your, your own facility, the people you've trained and how you got into, into this sort of um, side of things? Well, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I've been telling this story now for... Uh, Months, it seems like, because on every one of these podcasts, everybody has the same question. I am in year 38 of coaching. So I'm, I'm 60 years old. I got right out of college at 22 years old and basically went right to work. Really right at the beginning of the strength and conditioning field. Like there was, when I was in college, I didn't even know this existed as a possibility. By the time I was done with college, I had a couple of friends from college who had gotten jobs, part-time jobs at the collegiate level as strength and conditioning coaches. And then I've just kind of wandered my way along. You know, we opened a facility. We start, you know, I started teaching, I started writing, I started speaking. So now, you know, we've got all kinds of businesses that all 
revolve around fitness, strength and conditioning, personal training. I've got four books in publication. The last one is in, I think it's up to nine languages I've got, now. I've got one of them here. Yeah, that, so that's the 2004, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. older one. Yeah, that's yeah. because rewritten. I, I saw the new one. Yeah, in 2016, I rewrote the newest one. Mm. And I'm rewriting my second one right now. So, I, you know, I've been, I've been around longer than most of the people doing this have even been alive, so. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's fantastic. And, and I, I follow quite a lot of your stuff. Um, so when I decided to do these podcasts and reach out, it was literally, I suppose, a little pro uh, project for me over the last couple of weeks while we were put into restrictions here. And I think we're about five weeks in and I think you're maybe my 20th guest now at this stage. And it started out, uh, as I said, just as a, as a little bit of a project. But um, thank, thankfully, I'm getting so many people that are willing to give up their time, including yourself. Um, so great to be able to get somebody with your knowledge on board to be able to maybe give some tips to people like myself and to maybe some of those that are that are um, just coming out of college and that now and, and maybe looking to get into the industry. Um, Ireland as a whole is quite a bit behind, obviously. They, they've really only started taking the strength and conditioning side of things um, a little bit more seriously in, in, in the past five to ten years. Um, GAA is the dominant sport here. Um, ru rugby were a little bit ahead of it in terms of their strategies and implementing their, their strength and addition. And that's why we have seen, from a rugby point of view, Ireland sort of start to excel over the past couple of years and, and, and I suppose fairly cement themselves as one of the best rugby squads in the world. Um, but GAA would be still a little bit behind there. So for people trying to get into the industry now, and the fact that we are that little, I say a little bit, we're quite a few years obviously behind G guys, what would your advice be? I mean, it's always the same advice in terms of, uh, coach, you got to get out and work with people. Yeah. And I think what's happening, particularly it's funny, uh, you know, Ireland, England, you know, that area is very into the sports science thing. And everybody's into sports science. Mm. But there aren't enough good strength and conditioning coaches. But there's a lot of sports scientists floating around who have a really good sports science background, but they've never coached anybody. They can't so get think, the knowledge across. Yeah, you've got to get, you know, it's the, the knowledge part is fairly easy. The coaching part is fairly difficult. And I think that's where if you look like Ireland rugby hired Nick Winkleman, they hired a real good coach to start running that. And he started to hire some really good coaches. And Tom Claw, who was one of our interns, is working for him for Ireland Rugby. And, you know, we've got, we've got a bunch, actually. We probably have had at least one Irish intern a year since I think Robbie Bork was the first one that came over, who's a Dublin guy. And then we've had at least one, sometimes two every year coming back over to do it. But it's, you know, you've got to get out and get experience in the field because it's the old, the classic, like, you know, you can't get a job without experience. You can't get experience without a job. You can get experience without a job. You can volunteer. You can go someplace and work. You can watch. You can network. That's, the to me, the big thing with young coaches is getting out, meeting people, getting into situations where whether it's personal training, whether it's helping a youth team, whatever it is, but start coaching. Get some, like, some real boots-on-the-ground experience. Mm. I, I, I think it's the expectation for a lot of people. They go out so excited and with so much positivity and expect to go from college maybe or from getting their certifications or their degrees straight into coaching NFL or you know, straight yeah. to top level. And it's a stepping stone, really, isn't it? There's, there's a process to getting there. 
Yeah, and that's exactly the same way over here. The problem now is because there are some degree programs over there, you're turning out lots of people with degrees into a relatively small market. Like you said, if you know, particularly Ireland, I mean, there's, there's just not enough pro sport there. You don't have big soccer. You, know, you don't have, you know, none of the pro sport situations are very well developed. You know, like you said, that, you know, Gaelic football and hurling, some of the real popular things are still very much semi-professional kind of or amateur kind of sports. So I think part in and of itself is difficult, but, and this is, you know, one of the things I read a lot of people bitching on Twitter about, you know, I shouldn't have to volunteer my time after I spent all this time getting an education. And I kind of look at that and think you should have thought about that before you went and paid for your education. Yeah. Because, you know, it's one thing to think you don't go and train for a profession that doesn't have a lot of jobs without knowing that getting a job is going to be tough. Yeah. And I, there's so many people who are doing this and they go, I can't get a job. It's like, well, you might have wanted to investigate that a little bit more going in and realize that, I mean, even over here, I was a part-time strength coach for almost my first 10 years in the U.S. And you think, like you said, Ireland is way behind where we are. You know, we're in a situation now where we've got lots of people making six figures and we may get, we're not that far away from a seven-figure strength coach. There's a couple of college guys now mm. who've hit like the $700,000 a year mark, you know, U.S. dollars to be strength and conditioning coaches. But we're talking about something that was 30, 30 years in the making. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, Ireland, we were over there for the first, um, uh, I want to, it was the Irish Strength and Conditioning Coaches Association. So I-S-C-C-A. Mm. Uh, we did it out by the airport in Dublin. We had a great time. And yeah. one of the guys, I can't think of it, his last name was Kennedy. He had a facility out there. John. That, uh, yeah, John. did close down. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, and because he was almost he was ahead of his time, like he was, it was almost too big and too expensive and there just wasn't enough market for it. And yes. you've got to, like anything, you have to wait for these markets to develop. You can't just sit here and think, you know, I want a job. Who's going to pay me? It doesn't really work that way. Yeah, yeah, it's and that's just life. Like a lot of people turn around and say, "Well, it's not fair," but it's like as you said, it's life. And maybe when you, you as you said, maybe the research should have been done beforehand. But I, I think, and I've explained this to a lot of people as well, when it comes to any sort of position, any sort of job, if if money money is a byproduct of doing things well, and and it'll take a little bit of time to get there, but eventually, if you're doing it well and you're you're involved in it because you enjoy it. Like it, it's, it, if you enjoy it for starters, it means you're going to do a better job. What, what provided you have that knowledge? Exactly. But if that's, if you're worried about how much money you're going to make, you pick the wrong field. You yeah. particularly pick the wrong field if you're in Ireland right now where you're, you're in a really developing field. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit better. You know, you've got like, you know, England's got Premier League and they've got a, a bigger rugby league. So there's going to be uh, more jobs. But Ireland doesn't have that yet. Scotland doesn't have that yet. I mean, no, so no. there's really not, um, it's, you know, primarily limited to England where you guys are. And then you start getting into like, you know, you know, Series A or La Liga, you know, there's some, there's some big soccer leagues, but there's not, considering how large the continent of Europe is, there aren't as many opportunities because you don't, like in the United States, we've got professional baseball, professional hockey, professional basketball, professional American football. And all of those people are employing strength and conditioning coaches. So when you start looking at that, and then we've got collegiate, same thing in your collegiate athletic programs. There isn't the big emphasis on team sports like there is in ours. So we've got a, a fairly large 
body of potential employers in the United States mm. that you don't have in Europe right now. So it's uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, yeah, I think it has progressed a little bit. Definitely in our like as you said, the UK is even is is ahead of our, ourselves. But um, we have progressed a little bit in the last five to ten years. But just the, it, it's still not seen at the same value as perhaps over as you said in the United States because you have so many collegiate teams and so many of these professional sports teams um, that realise the benefits and and injury prevention because obviously you get an NFL guy. You know, he, he he will realize that how important that strength and condition side of things is because he doesn't want to get injured, especially when he's on seven-figure contracts and things like that. Right, exactly, and that's you know, that, and that's just, I mean, that's just reality. Now, for good, the good thing for us, ours are starting to trickle down. You'll see more high schools starting to add full-time strength and conditioning coaches here, but it's a process, mm. and it's. I mean, I like I said, I have some friends in in England that are working you know, doing youth sports training There's, you know, some of the stuff is out there, but you just, it, you have to realize that there's some patients involved and, uh, you know, people that are getting, you know, jumping out of these sports science degrees with a master's in sports science and suddenly saying, you know, where's my, where's my six figure position. It's like, there's a lot of people looking for that six figure position. Yeah. It all goes back to the, it's the, it's the, delayed gratification a lot of people just aren't willing to wait that time as you said you're you're 30 30 odd years involved like it's taken it, it, you know it's taken time to get to this position and, and you've obviously become such a renowned coach coaching you mentioned premiership there i know you've co co coached some of those guys you've coached like major league baseball you've coached nfl how did you get to that sort of there's one thing you know being the best in your town but then getting to a point where as i said you're recognized worldwide what steps did you take in order to get to that point where you started to get recognized and, and started to get called in by by much larger and more much more professional teams i think you know i always you know it's funny i always just took the next step and i think that's the key in terms of uh you know when i started i just was training basically uh you know our basketball team at boston university and then the hockey team asked me to help them out and i helped the hockey team out and then i went to the american football people and i volunteered my services to our american football guys and then the biggest thing is I did a good job. People got better. And because as you said, a lot of this is that slow and steady wins the race and one person tells another person and suddenly, you know, people were saying, well, you know, what are you doing? And it's like, well, I work with Mike Boyle. And all of a sudden there were more people that wanted to work with Mike Boyle and there were more people than Mike Boyle could handle working with himself. But it was a very kind of organic, slow rolling kind of snowball effect as opposed to anything dramatic. I do think that, you know, writing obviously makes a difference. Writing, when you're, when you're a published author, people look at you differently. Speaking makes a difference. When you start to get out, you know, on, I went, you know, perform better when we started doing these education seminars. I started going out and speaking to groups and speaking to coaches. And, and a lot of times too, it was the opportunity speaking anywhere that anybody asked me to speak and not worrying about the money or how much I'm going to get paid. You know, coaches, hey, you want to come to this coach and I can talk? I went. I never worried about what I was going to get paid. If I got paid, I got paid. If I got my expenses covered, I got my expenses covered. But it was always about kind of seizing the next opportunity. And I think, as you said, you know, delayed gratification, not worrying about how much. I never worried about how much money I was making. 
Never. Like I've never worried about how much money I was making in my life. And every year, and the less I've worried about how much money I've made, the more money I've made. And, but I was always worried about doing a really good job. I was always worried about the quality of my work and making sure that, that the work that I did was the best work that I was capable of doing and that I was always reading and investigating and trying to figure out, okay, who are the people, who do I need to, to follow? Who do I need to learn from? Who are the best people that are out there? Who's doing the best job? Instead of, you know, like I said, I watch these kids sit around and bitch on Twitter about the fact that they don't want to do a free internship. And I look at it and think, you're never going to make it. You're never going anywhere because you're wasting your energy bitching on Twitter about, you know, the fact that you're not going to get paid for your internship. And I'm looking at it thinking, who do I want to intern with? Yeah. That's the, where do I want to go? Who am different I mentality. Who's going to be my teacher? Yeah, completely different mentality. I never had that, that mentality of, I felt like somebody owed me something or that I deserved something. I had a job at night. I was a bartender at night and that paid my bills and, and more stories. And I saved money, but I always tell, you know, I tell my kids all the time. I said, I'm, I sound like that guy who, you know, walked uphill to school both ways kind of thing. At this <laughs> no shoes I, on. I worked every weekend for 10 years Yeah. because my wife was a waitress and I was a bartender and I was tending bar over by Fenway Park. And so, you know, you could work Friday night, Saturday day, Saturday night, Sunday day, you know, between kind of the, the nightclub part of the bar and the, you know, the pre and post game part of the bar and make, I mean, we made a boatload of money, but we didn't have weekends all summer. The only weekends we had were like, if the Red Sox were away, we had a weekend off, but we still worked Friday night, Saturday night. We just didn't have to work the double shift on Saturday and the Sunday day shift when there was a game, but I took every one of those shifts because I was like, this is, you know, I got to make money. I got to, I got to make a living. I got to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. But all the time, if you'd asked me what I did, if someone said, what's your job? I wouldn't have said Barton. I would have said strength. I'm the strength and conditioning coach at Boston university. And that was the job, you know, that I was proud of. That was what I kind of wore literally on my sleeve. But, you know, if someone said, where does the, you know, the majority of your income come from, I would have probably said, who's on first across the street from Fenway Park? That's where the majority of my income was coming from, was the bar room across from the baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a great piece of advice in there you said about going to, like forgetting about the money side of things. Obviously, we need to live. So, yeah, you, you supplement that however you need to do it. Like you said, you went and you, were, you bartended. Um, but it really doesn't matter how much information you have if, if, if you're not getting it out to people. And sometimes an issue, you may have to do things that you don't like to do. And as you said, like internships. But I, 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 I'm of that mindset myself, whereas I find if an opportunity presents itself and you, you sort of say no to it, um, and then you start bitching, like, you know, you need to get your priorities really in order. Exactly. That's, you know, because you can't, you can't bitch about an opportunity not taken. Yeah. You can't look at it and think, well, you know, because whenever anybody says, oh, you know, well, it wasn't enough money or they wanted me to do it for free, I'm looking at it and think, but they wanted you to do it. People always, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, people say, well, you know, where did you learn to speak? And I said, one of my friends had a hockey camp, still it was called the International Hockey Academy, and he would have kids in on Saturday and Sunday during the day, and he'd pay me uh, like $25 an hour to talk to the kids about whatever, fitness, strength and conditioning, and I might do five hours on a Saturday. And that was way less money. Like bartending, sometimes, you know, I could make a lot more money than that, 
but it was the opportunity to get in front of kids and to talk about what I did and to work on my speaking skills. And those were, those opportunities led to more opportunities because suddenly adults would come in, parents would come in, see me speak. And I had parents come and say, I need you to come to my school and, you know, talk to our teams. I mean, I can remember the first really good paid speaking engagement I had, I drove up to New Hampshire about two and a half hours away because a parent had seen me speak and said, I need you to speak to our whole athletic program. I want to bring you up here. You know, and I think he said he was going to pay me like $400. And really, when you think about it, it was a two, two hour plus drive each way plus the hour talk. So it really wasn't an exorbitant amount of money. But to me, I was like 400 bucks to drive to New Hampshire, do a talk and drive back. I'm like, I'm in. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's, that's the reality. You, you have to, you don't have that kind of go-getter mentality, then, you know, education, you're wasting your money. You might as well, you know, go work for the government, go work yeah, for the company, yeah. whatever, but don't be in this deal. I, li- I like the way you mentioned there as well about learning a new skill by getting up in front of people. Um, I'm all for that, trying to push myself outside my comfort zone in that, like that I've started recently talking to different companies and corporate companies and that about, about just fitness in general, strength and conditioning, um, building habits, all that side of things. But it's a completely different skill. So just because you went to college to learn strength and conditioning, if you can't relay that or relate that back to the person that you're trying to train, they're not going to get the results that you're looking for. So to go off and, and like you said there yourself, to go off and, and speak to as many people as you can is really a smart approach because that is another skill that you needed to hone in order to make sure everything came together well for you. Well, if you think, I mean, coaching is really probably a combination of teaching and public speaking. You know, if, if you look at those two things and think, okay, you know, I'm a good teacher, I can teach, I'm a good public speaker, I can speak in front of a group, that's probably going to make you a good coach. But subject matter knowledge is probably not going to make you a good coach. Mm-hmm. It's that ability, I always go back to the Einstein quote of, if you can't explain it simply, you don't really understand it. And I'm always amazed by watching people and realizing how some people can't explain what they want people to do or what they're trying to get somebody to do. And, and that's kind of that, you know, that's the art versus the science. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that because um, I, I, I talk a lot to my clients about this simplistic approach and taking the easiest approach and you will, whether that's nutrition or whether it's from a training point of view, um, and especially with somebody starting out, like it's different, obviously dealing with your average Joe and Jane or dealing with an athlete. Um, but I think it's important to break it down so that they can understand it simply and that they can, they can make it a part of their daily routine or a part of their program when it comes to, you know, if they are an athlete. Um, I, I, I see a lot of coaches out there, though, and, and I think it's definitely, I don't know if it's, it's like that out there, but definitely over here that they try and justify their title and you know, so rather than, than taking a simple approach initially, they start adding in all these bells and whistles in order to, as I said, you know, when they could have taken a more simple route, which probably would have been better for the client, that their their egos take over a little bit and they decide to start putting this stuff in that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but more often than not, there's a, it, there's a simpler option. Right. It's a, it goes back to Occam's razor. Simplest solution is usually the best solution. 
And that's a pretty good piece of advice for most people. And yeah, as you're, you're right. I mean, we all, I always talk about people sort of overthinking and overanalyzing and trying to be way too technical. You don't need to do that. I, I work with the best athletes in the world mm -hmm. and it still goes back to that idea of the simplest solution is the best solution. It's not, it's not nearly as complicated as everybody wants to make it out to be. Yeah. You, you've written obviously books on functional training and that. Um, and like I refer back to your stuff quite a bit, obviously, as do many other coaches. Um, but I think it's lost its meaning a little bit quite often. You see, again, like that, we go back to some coaches where you'll see maybe they're, they're getting their clients to do these. When I, when I approach a client, I'm sort of weighing up pros and cons. And each client is obviously different and each client has different needs. But I'll always take a simple approach and progress it from there. But they, you know, one particular exercise might suit one person and not suit another. But you'll often see, as I said, with functional training that they, they, they'll jump to, you know, doing single leg pistol squats on a stability ball while doing a shoulder press with a dumbbell sort of thing, you know. And I think it's funny. I mean, that was very much, you know, it was interesting. When I first went to write functional training for sports, I asked them, Human Kinetics came to me, you know, the book that you had in your hand and said, we want you to write a book on functional training. And my answer was literally, I don't know if I know what that is. <laughs> and the the guy then that you know the acquisitions editor the guy who was trying to get me to write the said well we think whatever it is that you're doing we think that's functional training and so i literally said okay i can write whatever i want and you're going to publish it under the title of functional training for sports and he said yep that's exactly what we're going to do he said you're going to write a book we're going to call it functional training for sports and but it's going to be you know we're not going to tell you what you think and that's why it's funny there was a little because i got a little heat about that whole functional training thing in the beginning mm. people say no it's all balance stability ball all that stuff and i actually wrote a response back to one guy I said you didn't read the book i said because i think there were six at that time six or nine exercises i don't remember which one in the book that used some sort of balance apparatus the reality is now we don't do any of those anymore mm. <laughs> So we, we've evolved out of that, but there was a little bit of some circusy stuff, maybe some balance board squatting, you know, a couple mm. of little things like that. But, you know, it was much more the idea that I always said functional training was purposeful training. It was training that respected. I always said, when you think about functional training, it is the application of functional anatomy to training. It's like the, we took the word anatomy out. It's looking at, what the muscles do and then incorporating those things into your training program as opposed to you know if you looked at it from the standpoint of there's two types of training functional training and dysfunctional training in dysfunctional training you train the muscles in very isolated ways doing things that they never do in real life in functional training you train the muscles in very integrated ways using things that you always do in real life and that was all there really was to it. You know, there was no, like you said, you know, stand in a BOSU ball, close one eye, do a squat, you know, press the dumbbell up your head. But that's where some people went with it. There was, there were all of these, you know, I called it in the book, the functional continuum. And there was this continuum from maybe, you know, sitting on a machine someplace and doing a leg extension to what you were talking about in terms of, you know, doing a squat on an upside down bow ball with your eyes closed and, you know, your ears plugged. And, and the idea is that 
the best training is probably something that lies towards the center of that continuum. It's not all the way out on the left side. It's not all the way down on the right side. Yeah. When you, when you started to write your publications and, and, and author those books and things, did you have much resistance from people looking to... Oh, just, yeah. Yeah? Always. I mean, sorry, I got to move here for a second. But, you know, there's okay. always resistance to change. And it's one of the things, there's another quote that I have to, I got to make sure I get this one straight in my mind here. But, um, you know, they talk about there's the stages of a new idea and the stages they basically talk about there's always three stages to a new idea the first one is ridicule the second one is violent opposition and then the third stage is uh, we well, i've been doing that for years <laughs> and um and i can't think of the guy's name there's actually a philosopher that that said that and i always remember thinking you know initially i was in the ridicule stage you know like people you know Mike Boyle's a clown, you know what I mean? Functional training is bullshit. You can, it's really funny because I have a, a friend, a guy named Keir Wenham Flat, who's an uh, English rugby coach. And he's got an old video I always pull up on YouTube called Functional Training is Bullshit, you know, where he just goes on about functional training is stupid. And, you know, basically Mike Boyle doesn't know what he's talking about. And then 10 years later, he kind of comes around and he's, you know, doing more unilateral stuff. And he's like, yeah, you know, a lot of the things that you said 10 years ago that I thought were stupid, I don't necessarily think it's so stupid right now. And we always joke about him being, you know, there's the charter member of, you know, the, I used to think Mike Boyle was a sissy kind of club. And now I realize, hey, you know, he might've been onto something, but that's that process of initially people just laughed at you mm -hmm. in like 2000. I want to say it was maybe 2006 or 2009. I forget when that death of squatting clip came out when I said, you know, we're not doing back squats anymore. Mm -hmm. Then we spent a good long period. It's just ending now what I would call the violent opposition phase where people were really, you know, now they were going after me personally and saying things about me because they were really worried now that I, you know, wait a second, this guy's got too many people's ears. People are actually starting to listen to him. We got to really, we got to fight back hard. You know, and I always said the, the two feet on the ground, you know, the Olympic lifters, power lifters, those kind of people really violently opposed the things that I was saying. Now, when you look at sport training, we're in that like, oh, I've always done that. Everybody does that. You know, everybody does one leg training. Everybody, does, you know what I mean? It's like, so we've literally moved through those idea stages in, you know, since really probably since 2004 when that book was written. So, you know, over whatever, 16 year period, we've gone from it being a joke to it being mm -hmm. a big deal. Have your, since you, I suppose, started in this field, has your processes and your sort of mindset and, and the way you program for people, has it changed much over, over those years? Because obviously everything evolves and progresses. And I would say yes, it has changed. Because I think like I was, you know, when I started doing this, I would put myself in the dumb category that everybody was in. You know, we were a bench squad clean kind of American football program. And, you know, slowly over time, we started to look at things and sort of look at injury prevention and study rehab and look at risk benefit. And I would say we're still now, if you looked at us and said, you know, we still bench press. We don't squat very much anymore. You know, we're probably more of a trap bar, you know, as a bilateral strength exercise kind of thing. Uh, you know, we still hang clean, but it's the other things that now encompass it that have developed even more. Uh, you know, there's, you know, core training has become a bigger deal. Unilateral training has become a bigger deal. So, so I would think 
if you were like a, you know, a Mike Boyle guy in whatever, 1990, you might look at the program now and think it's really drastically different. But if I said to you, wait a second, you know, in 1990, you know, we, we did, you know, lower body training, we did upper body training, we did power training, we did plyos, we ran sprints. I don't think it's that different. Someone else might look at it and think, oh my God, it's so different. I can't believe how different it is from then to now. But it's the same. We talk about that sort of slow evolution where you start looking at things and thinking, well, that was a really good idea at the time, but probably not such a great idea anymore. And maybe that ended up being something that we didn't think was going to be as healthy or as good for people as maybe something else. And that's really, I always talk about the idea that we always want to be analyzing risk versus benefit. We want to look at, okay, what's the risk of a particular exercise? What's the benefit? I would look at it and say, I talk all the time about the idea of what's the orthopedic cost of that exercise? Because that's my big gripe with squatting, back squatting particularly, is I think heavy bilateral squatting has a very high orthopedic cost. It's one of those things that not everybody can do it for a long period of time and stay healthy. The, but the people who complain the most about it are the ones who've been able to stay and do it the longest. So you kind of get, you know, you're a little bit, a little bit stuck there because you've got some people, whether they're being, you know, powerlifters or Olympic lifters or whatever it is, who were able to do this for a really long period of time and then feel like everybody should be able to do this when that's just not true. Yeah, there's always the exceptions to be to the rule, and and it's going it's always going to be very difficult to change that those type of people's minds. Yeah. So so it's more than that. Your your system would have refined, or you had would have refined it over time when you saw what has worked and what hasn't, and discarded what didn't. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's funny. Like you have a perfect example. You have that 2004 book. If you look at that 2004 book. There isn't even a mention of things like foam rolling or soft tissue work in that book. Mm-hmm. I actually say in the book not to static stretch. But if you looked at our warm-ups right now, all of our warm-ups start with foam rolling and static stretching, two things that in 2004 we were not doing. Mm-hmm. But if you looked at the dynamic warm-up that's in that book, it's almost identical to the dynamic warm-up that we do right now. If you look at the Olympic lifting section of that book, it's almost identical to the Olympic lifting things that we do now. If you looked at the plyometric section, almost identical to what we do now. So there are some things, as you said, that have evolved as we started to understand more about tissue and about tissue adaptations. We started to look more at, okay, how do we better prepare this tissue for the demands that we're going to place on it? That changed things that we're going to do. But if you looked at some of the other ways, you know, how we're going to develop power, we're still developing power. Uh, very much primarily the same way that we did before. And is there an area that you were particularly drawn to, um, or, or 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 was it just that the body in general, like excited you? Like was were you ever more drawn to the rehabilitation side, or was it always the athletic development? Or I started out as an athletic trainer, so I started out on the rehabilitation side because I didn't, like I said, strength and conditioning did not exist. So I had a background in athletic training. And then I took that and I also, because I was training for American football, I started competing in powerlifting. So I then had a really good you know, initial background in strength training. But then it was when you started to intersect those two things and look and say, okay, you know, what are people saying 
from a rehab perspective? And then what are people saying from a training perspective? And suddenly those two worlds kind of mesh together. And that's, I think, what's really valuable for me. Because if you look at like some of the guys we've had on the podcast, um, like a Stuart McGill, you know, I've been very eager. I think where you learn is if you look at what the best people in the world are doing to get somebody back from injury, that's probably going to give you a lot of good indicators of what the best thing to do might be for a particular person in a particular situation who was healthy. So I started to incorporate a lot of what I learned in more advanced rehab kind of environments into what we're doing from a strength and conditioning standpoint. And when it comes to strength and conditioning for some of your, your top end athletes, do you approach them? Do you approach everybody? Obviously, everybody is different, as I said, and it's maybe, you know, having the average Joe, someone's coming in looking for weight loss or someone that's looking to just get a little bit stronger, as opposed to like an NFL guy who's looking to pack on, you know, muscle and injury prevention and who's getting paid a lot of money. Do you, how, how do you, what, what's your approaches to each of those two different, I suppose, niches? You know, or, you know, I always think, it's all basically the same. Yeah. If I would tell people, if you came and watched our athletes train, or if you came and watched our general public people train, I think what would be most remarkable to you would be the similarity of everything that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, the difference is in the capacity of the person to do it. You know, we might have people that are doing a four inch box jump, literally, like they might be jumping onto a, you know, a four inch foam box. And we might have somebody else who's capable of jumping easily onto a 30-inch box. But both are doing box jumps. You know, we might have somebody throwing medicine balls and, it, you know, it might not look very athletic. It might not look very smooth. And they might be throwing them next to someone who looks like they were born to throw a medicine ball. But they're both throwing medicine balls. And then you go in the weight room and, you know, everybody's doing some variation of a split squat and everybody's doing some type of press and everybody's doing some type of pull. It's really not all that different. And I think that's one of the things that has helped us to really build our adult business. Our adults are in their training with the best athletes in the world, particularly our adults that train in the morning. Our pro athletes are in there at the same time as them. So, you know, you can have a day where you're training, you know, next to a guy who's pitching in the World Series, another woman who's playing in the World Championships in ice hockey, another woman who's playing on the national team in lacrosse, and, you know, a guy who's playing in the NFL. And they can all be walking around training at the same time that you're training they may not be in your group but you're looking at them and you're realizing wow they're pushing the sled just like i am and they're throwing the medicine ball just like i am and they're jumping over mm -hmm. hurdles just like i am i mean there really isn't that much difference regardless of what somebody's trying to accomplish yeah and where do you get the most satisfaction you personally you know personally now i think i enjoy the kids more to be honest, you know, and I think that's part of the evolution. When you're younger, it's the pro athletes and it's seeing people that you train on TV and being friends with people that are important. And then you kind of get over that. And, and then you start realizing it's, you know, it's more like for me seeing my, my kids' friends get better and do better is probably more rewarding for me now than like, you know, I could care less. I think last year I went to, uh, I think I went to one professional sporting event. I think I went to one Bruins game during the whole year. And that was it. You know, I didn't go, I didn't go to a Celtics game. I didn't go to a Patriots. I haven't been to a Patriots game in probably 20 years. Um, uh, you know, I don't get a big jolt out of that stuff anymore.
Yeah. And are you still personally still as excited and motivated that you, I, I don't even like using the word motivated, but, you know, as excited about the field as you always were? Because I know it's quite difficult like it's it's quite difficult to excite somebody that's coming in looking to to rehab <laughs> something if, if you sort of don't still have that passion so how do you maintain that sort of passion that excitement for the industry and for i suppose bringing an athlete or as i said the average joe soap along from from one point to another i like my job i think i've always liked my job so it's never been hard in all honesty the last couple of years the first years now i'm 60 now and it, I don't, I'm not probably as excited about it as I was, but I have a lot of young people working with me who are still really excited and really good at it. And I get more excited about teaching them and coaching them and helping them to be better. But I am getting to the point where uh, all of a sudden I used to think I could never retire. And now I'm like, I don't know if I'll retire, but I could definitely do less and be okay with doing less. This whole quarantine thing has shown me that a little bit in terms of, you know, I'm not so uh i don't have a big need to be busy like i used to yeah yeah i I, i'm similar in that regard um i I do a lot of hours in my gym here and i own a gym and a martial arts facility we're an sbg affiliate um but i would own a gym and we we get guys coming in doing rehab and a lot of referrals from physical therapists and physios and things like that as well but just like you're saying there i've been very attached to it and always there and you know these these couple of weeks in 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 sort of isolation with the restrictions has has got me sort of thinking a little bit differently as well because sometimes you don't know you don't know <laughs> and when you sort of have to take when you take a step back like that it allows you to to assess the situation and um, a lot of positives uh, like there's definitely a lot of negatives at the minute but for me personally i found a lot of positives in the period of time that i've had to reflect I as well I mean, i've enjoyed i've been doing a lot i've been doing a lot of carpentry work working on my house um, and you know i've kind of rediscovered some of those things that i liked to do you know when i was when I was younger, now I, you know, I was always too busy to take on a project kind of thing. And now I'm like, eh, you know, I can, I'm, you know, replacing some siding on the house. I redid a bit room in the basement, you, you know, things that I wouldn't have done had they not been stuck in this pandemic mess. Yeah. Um, from a personal perspective, um, I, and I, I would like to get your, your I suppose, um, a view on this, but um, when it came to, to you working over the years, would you, I suppose I wouldn't take on every client because I think it's very important that the person that you're training and sometimes money can maybe uh, put blinkers on and, and, you, and, you, and you, you, you don't make the correct decisions. But I've always been, or definitely in the last couple of years of the mindset that you need to take on clients that are somewhat similar to you so that you can, because if you take on someone that you really don't fucking like, <laughs> it's, it's incredibly difficult to ensure or to, to help them make the progression that they might need to make. So how have you made those decisions over there? Or, or, or would it be a case that you'd find it a challenge and say, no, look, we, we, we'll get there regardless. Yeah, no, I don't work, I don't work with anybody I don't like anymore. Yeah. I just because I don't have to. I got plenty of trainers who are hungry, young, want the work you know, and they, they feel like that kind of stuff for me i'd rather not get paid by somebody that i like than get paid by somebody i don't so most of my clients are you know they tend to be i have my son and his friends i have a 15 year old son and his friends that i train uh in the summer i have my daughter who plays college ice hockey and her friends who i train and you know i have some women who play for our women's national ice hockey team that i train that i really enjoy time my time with 
and I have some pro athletes, a lot of whom I've known for a long time, but I don't like, I don't do any one-on-one stuff anymore. I don't have yeah. any, I have one personal training client who I've trained for like 20 years. And I always joke, you know, one of us, we're either going to have to die or get divorced, but um, you know, it's uh it's one of those situations in that sense. I'm lucky because we've got probably 20 people doing personal training for our company. So there's always somebody who's eager to grab a new client. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you've had so many clients through the doors over the years and so many high profile clients. Is there ever, ever, was there ever anybody that really caught your eye that you went, wow, like that person is, is obviously very talented, but their work ethic just outshines everybody else. They're, you know, everything that they do, that they're so meticulous in their approach. Has there ever anyone that you've really looked at and said, wow, that they're, I mean, we, you know, it's funny. We have lots of those types of people and it's almost hard because you, you do an injustice to some others. If you pick out one and say, Hey, this one person was just, you know, so amazing, but it's, um, so I wouldn't say no, there was like, Oh my God, this person was head and shoulders above everybody else. But I mean, I've been very lucky in terms of I've had actors, actresses, uh, you know, you know, business owners, billionaires, um, you know, elite level people in just about every professional sport. And surprisingly, you know, a lot of them were really, really committed and dedicated and put in, you know, a huge amount of time and made it a priority to, to get better. So no, there's really not like, I wouldn't be able to look and go, Oh yeah, this person was kind of head and shoulders above everybody else. And from a business side of things, you, you spoke about the, the, the what's next and, and taking that next step each time and not being afraid to, um, where did risk factor into that? Cause obviously potentially over the years you've, you've, you know, you've built up such a huge business and, and with the, the body by boil, your own strength and conditioning facility in Boston, like where did risk play there? Was it, you know, was it very calculated? It never, as you went? It never really played in. I never really, yeah. I've never thought much about failing. Yeah. Cause I don't think you can operate in that mindset. Yeah. In that, Oh my God, this might not work because that's not, you're not going to be successful if you're going into something, worrying about failing at it. Yeah. I think you're going to be successful if you're worried about the idea that I'm going to do this really well. And I think like we're doing what you're doing, you know, we started out as a small entrepreneurial type business and, you know, we knew like we would been very good. I've been very lucky. I've had the same business partner for over 20 years and he runs the business side of it and he's really conscientious and really frugal, you know, so that's why even now with this pandemic, we're in a great spot because we've got a lot of money put away for, you know, we always had money, you know, the what if money, rainy day money kind of thing. And sometimes even to the point where I'd almost laugh at him and think, Bob, why do we have so much money in the bank? Like we don't need, now I look at it and think, eh, thank God, Bob kept a lot of money sitting around in the bank because, you know, we've got five months worth of expenses put away someplace. And, you know, we're going to be, when other, other people are going to be dropping off the map, we're still going to be there. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a, there's just, it was just always slow and steady wins the race. I always kind of thought like, Okay, let's try this. I never did anything uh, crazy. I never took incredible risks, but it was more okay. Let's let's open up. And I was always very much let's just the like, same thing. Let's just do the next thing. What's the next thing we can do? And some of the things like our certification ended up being a like a home run, home run. You know, like a, a you know a grand slam because 
And for years, the guys were like, you should have a certification course. And I was like, certification courses are stupid. Why? I don't even understand it. Like, people should just want to learn. They don't need a certification. Then we started to realize that our learning, our like mentorship kind of things that we were doing were declining to the point where we were almost getting nobody coming to our mentorships. And then somebody would put on, you know, what I would consider to be like a BS certification course and get 100 people. And I started to look and think, okay, the, the market is telling me that they want their education packaged as a certification. When they're done, they want to say they're certified in something. So we started to approach that um, and built it into, but the other thing that I took three of our young trainers who were hustlers and I partnered them in, I rolled them into the business with my partner, Bob and I, we opened in a separate company and I gave each one of those guys 10% of the business. I said, Hey, you're going to be an owner, but it's, you're going to be, it's going to be your job, not mine. I said, I'm not going to be at every course. I'm not going to teach every course. I, you know, I've developed this curriculum that we're going to use over my lifetime, but I'm going to let you guys go out and, and sell it. And they have done an unbelievable job. Kevin yeah. and Brendan Rierick. I mean, and now we, you know, our coaches are literally traveling the world doing it. You know, we finally put it online, which we were very resistant to. And that ended up being, talk about all the smart things. We were so resistant. We don't, want online cert. we don't want an online cert. Six months ago, we decided let's try an online cert and see what happens. And now with the pandemic, best thing we ever did. So sometimes yeah. we've just been fortunate. We've done some things kind of accidentally that have worked out really well. And, and we just kept, you know, we've, we've stayed abreast of trends. We've been proactive about the internet. We've been proactive about online training. We've been proactive about developing a certification. You know, even we were proactive about, you know, adult group training when CrossFit was getting really big. We said, Hey, CrossFit's getting huge. We should be doing some of this adult group type stuff and really pushing it. And we started having morning groups, you know, 515, 530 in the morning, six in the morning. Now that's 50% of our business our our adults. So I think we've, we've not been afraid to try things, but we have not recklessly tried. Yeah. So I think there's a combination of not being afraid and not being dumb. Calculated. Yeah. Calculated. And you know, people always like to use the, the word organic, you know, just, just let it grow on its own. And that's really what we've done. Hmm. And just you, you, interestingly, you, you spoke about your certification there, which has now become a world-recognized certification and definitely one of the best in the industry. So what was the catalyst for that then? You mentioned, was it literally just a case that you saw all these other BS courses and said, do you know what, like, yeah, I, I can exactly actually offer more? Yeah. Yep. Our thing when we were looking and thinking, this is ridiculous. I, you know, and I won't say who it was, but we allowed somebody to host a course at our facility as a favor mm -hmm. and we looked and you know, they had 40 people show up for a one day course paying $500 a person for information that I thought, I don't know, you know, nothing earth shattering, nothing nearly close to what we thought we could do. And we looked at it and said, you know, these guys just had a $20,000 weekend and rented mm -hmm. our facility from us to have a $20,000, $20,000 day right? You know, a $20,000 Sunday. And I thought we're being really bad business people if we don't start to approach this differently and start to do so, you know, and then we thought about how we wanted to do it. And we said, okay, if we're going to do it. We want it to be better than what everybody else is doing. So we really examined what everybody else was doing. And, and we put together a really good quality product. But even then, 
I didn't think it would be as good as it was. I didn't think it would be as, as successful as it was. I was a little bit surprised by how well received it was. And now we've gone out and done it. You know, we've done it for the Boston Celtics, Milwaukee Brewers, San Jose, uh, or rather um, San Diego Padres. Like we've done it for a bunch of professional sports teams. You know, we've sent people in and done the one day course. Then we went to, to the um, AS Roma in series a, you know, we've gone, uh, you know, to a bunch of um, places and done these courses as well as the ones we're doing. And now we're doing them. We're in Hungary. We're in Korea. You know, we're literally, we're, you know, China and Japan, uh, all over the world doing these certification courses. And it really sprung out of the fact that it just, hey, this is what people want. You know, sometimes it gives the people what they want, right? This is how they want education packaged. Then we'll package some education that way for them. Brilliant. I think Ireland now has a lot of little budget courses jumping up, and this has become an issue. I, you know, specifically, specifically in Ireland, in our country, where there's all these courses and, and people are, they're being churned out and they're not willing to invest in some of the more expensive courses and invest in themselves because there's these other budget shitty courses being, be, being offered there. And unfortunately, it's starting to dilute down. And we haven't really reached a point, like I said, we're, we're, we're only 10 years really where the strength and condition side of things has taken any bit of a turn for, for, for us. Um, yet now, the, as I said, there's so many being churned out and that don't really have the knowledge. Um, like, like what, do you, how, what do you tell people there? How do you, because it affects the industry as a whole here in, in, in our country. I tell people the same thing all the time. You get what you pay for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What do they say? Free, free advice is worth the cost. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. True. True. Yeah. Um, and you know, these budget certifications, I think if you look and think, okay, who's the person and it, does this certification have any value outside of this person's limited circle? That's the difference for us. Our certification. Now we've created value mm. because people look at it and think, okay, if you've taken the CFSC, then you've done some really good, solid continuing education. You've been exposed to lots of yeah. really good information. And that's what we wanted. We always wanted to be a quality brand. That was really the goal. Be a quality brand. Be something that, you know, I always say, you know, be the Mercedes Benz of the industry. And that's what we work towards. We want to be, and we want to look at that and think we're a quality brand that's at a reasonable price. You know, we're not gouging people and we're, yeah. not, we're not arrogant and we're not mean spirited. There's so many people in the fitness world that are kind of arrogant and mean spirited and don't treat people well. And we're trying to look at a lot of these things and think um, we're trying to send really good people out to teach who really want to help people get better and really want to help people learn. And it works. Yeah. Oh no, it's excellent. I, 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 I definitely agree. I think, I think the problem is sometimes people misinterpret value and they look at the number that's maybe attached to it, like that a course or that, and they think, oh, well, no, no, I'm not paying that when that one is a little bit cheaper, but they don't right. understand the, the backbone of the course or the, the content that that was created and the content that they're getting from that. And the, the, I suppose the, the advantage of having those courses to, to your name. Yeah, for us, I mean, we have like the amount of online information that you get access to in our course is worth the price of the course without the one day course itself, mm. because you get access to a massive amount of information. So if you don't know, 
if you know a lot about our system, you probably don't need much of that information. If you know, I mean, I, we have people show up at the course and I'm always amazed because there are people say things like, oh, I've been training for two months, you know, using your system. I feel great. I understand. And it's really cool to realize, wow, somebody takes this really seriously. They look at it and yeah. think, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to immerse myself in this to, to get better. Yeah. And they do. I mean, we see people really, it, the number of people who talk about the course being life-changing. You know, I look at that and think, wow, life, that's a big, that's yeah. a pretty big word, you know, when you start thinking life-changing. But that's what we get because some people go from this idea of, hey, I really had, you know, like you said, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. Now I do know what I don't know. <laughs> and, and I can really, you know, expose myself kind of to a whole different world here. Excellent. And you mentioned the transition into online um, with, with obviously courses and things like that and certifications. Do you think outside of the certifications, online content will play a big part now going forward? Have you adapted much in that sort of a way? Is that gonna be we're doing a lot of online stuff now because we have to, but no, yeah. I think people will flock back to the gyms. I think people really miss yeah. the camaraderie, the environment. We have people constantly talking to us about, I can't wait to get back. I can't wait till we get back. I can't wait to get my kids back. All of those things. So it's, um, yeah, I, 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 I hope so. I hope so. Cause I, but I think we'll be better at delivering homework and online content and extra yeah. stuff to do by virtue of going through this process, Yeah, which I think is really good. But I don't think, I don't think the in-person gym business will be hurt. You know, I think the education business may be hurt because mm. people have realized how easy the types of things that we're doing right now are, how easy Zoom is with a bunch of people, how you can have like a, you know, I've done one hour little mini clinics or two hour mini clinics for college staffs via Zoom that, that we would not have been able to do, that they wouldn't have been able to afford if it was a matter of, hey, I got to get Mike Boyle to fly to wherever, you know, Indianapolis for the weekend and pay him to do a couple hours with my staff. Mm. Now they can zoom, literally zoom you in like we're doing right now. And you know, you can screen share and you can bring up videos. I think we've learned a lot about teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was chatting to a guy there the other day and, and he mentioned that because we've sort of been forced to a lot of people that wouldn't have been maybe comfortable with, but that needed to maybe adapt and to try and save their businesses and were sort of forced online that it's actually moved technology forward by of eight to 10 years or something ridiculous because there's these collective now that maybe would never have looked to online and looking to progress their skills there. But as I said, we, we, we've sort of had no choice, you know? Well, we, that's exactly it. And we were in that exact situation, but we were already like, we were using train heroic and we were already in the process of developing more online training because we realized people are making money with online training and it's the same thing. Okay. We have a better product. Why not get it online? Same way we did with certifications. But we yeah. were very lucky in terms of we were able to do that prior to the pandemic and be a little bit ahead. Sorry, I'm plugging in my computer here because I'm just about out of battery. But to be able to chat to you, absolutely fantastic. And I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much for having me. Always good to help out a good Irishman. What, one question. When, when are you going to come back to Ireland? I don't know. I'm not as excited. That's one of the things. I'm not yeah. as excited about traveling as I used to be. Yeah, yeah. I don't enjoy it. I really don't. I, I'm, a, I'm getting to be more of a homebody. I want to be home. I want to be around my kids. I just, so I don't know. It, it might be a while. 
You never know. That, that's not the answer I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Listen, Michael, thank you so much, Jane. Talk to you right. soon. Cheers, man. Bye, 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 bye. All right, guys, that is a wrap on another episode. Thank you for joining me this week on the Gym and Tonic podcast. Make sure to visit our website, www.thegymballonat.ie, for more great content. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, and you'll never miss another episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, I would really appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help me out too. If you liked this podcast, you might want to check out our social media platforms. On Instagram, at the underscore gym underscore balana, or on Facebook, at the gym balana. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. That's it from me, Stephen, at the Gym and Tonic Podcast. And remember, this is what we do.